forgotten history, Civil Rights in Canada is a riveting book that will change, I guarantee, your perspective on Canada. And today I'm delighted to have its author, Lord Conrad Black, come and discuss it, as well as some very important associated issues. A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense and innovation. It's urban, it's rural, it's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier. Lord Conrad Black is a proud Canadian. He's also a British peer in the House of Lords, and he's the former publisher of numerous uh, newspapers around the world, including the Jerusalem Post, the National Post, and of course, uh, the Daily Telegraph. He is acclaimed as an author, and he is a commentator, and he's also a friend of Frontier. So welcome, Lord Conrad Black. Thank you, David. Always a pleasure to do anything associated with Frontier. Thank you. Well, we're, I'm, I'm quite excited to talk about the book um, as it relates to not only better understanding Canadian history and the topic of civil rights, but also as a touchstone, if you will, to talk about so many important issues uh, today uh, as we look at Canada and, and certainly around the world. Um, but I, I found it really quite an interesting revelation as you talked about um, civil rights. Uh, it was quite sweeping from even before Canada was founded, and then, of course, in more recent events here in our country. So I want to start off with a really basic question. Why did you decide to write about civil rights in Canada? Well, I, I had a role as the historian of the Democracy Fund. I, I wasn't an employee, but, but uh, they described me as the historian in residence, even though I wasn't in working terms resident there. And um, so I, I thought it would be appropriate to, given that I do write history books from time to time, uh, to look at the history of, of civil rights in Canada, since the Democracy Fund is chiefly uh, preoccupied with and busy with uh, upholding and advocating the rights of individuals and organizations in some cases. And uh, it just seemed to me that we didn't have, unlike some other countries, such as the United States and the United Kingdom and France, a, a significant literature detailing the milestones in our own history that, that, are, you know, that are relevant to the subject. Uh, people just assume, with good reason, that rights exist in Canada and then that record are we're reasonably competitive, which is fair, but not much is known about how rights happen. There's a sort of a general mm -hmm. assumption that we somehow inherited them from the English. And so I looked into it a bit and I thought this could be a useful project for the Democracy Fund to just to produce a, a short book. It's an unpretentious book. I mean, you, mm -hmm. you did me the favor and honor of reading it it didn't it couldn't have taken you i mean if you just took a flight from toronto to vancouver you would have got through it and asked for the newspapers and still mm -hmm. you know still be over the prairies it's not a big book but um 
but it, it does it does give the summary of the history of the development of, of human and civic rights in Canada. And it, it is, as much of Canadian history is, more interesting than we as a nationality generally mm-hmm. give ourselves credit for. Mm-hmm. And it's, as you might expect, a combination of French and English influences. And, mm-hmm. and also in more recent times, since Canada has been an autonomous country, there have been noticeable foreign influences, particularly from the United States, given their mm-hmm. proximity and the dynamism of that country and the size of that country. Mm-hmm. It's obviously an influence here. And, um, and, and it, 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 but it's come together in an interesting way. And we do have a blended system, if I may call it that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and some of the episodes in it, the truckers strike being perhaps the, or the truckers demonstration being the, the most recent, uh, are unique to us and formative in the development of rights. And, and we've mm-hmm. got a number of, uh, a number of issues as a country we have to resolve. And in particular, this business of group rights interpreted mm-hmm. uh, in a way that can be deemed to be disrespectful of individual rights. And that's a current controversy in Canada, as you know. And, and uh, so I, did my best to put it all together in a book that's easily read. I mean, it's not hard to read just, you know, each, it, it's not a complicated book mm-hmm. with big words in it. It's a simple read, mm-hmm. but, but it, rather an interesting read for any it really is. person, I hope. And, and, and not, as I said, not a long read. So anyone, it's very accessible. So anyone who's really interested is. can pick the book up at, at a insignificant cost and and uh, and read it in a short time in a weekend or even yeah. even one evening if they yeah. if they devote the whole evening to it never no i I, 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 I think it's a great summation um uh lord black and and i i realize that it's it's a shorter book but it's it's quite profound as you mentioned so let's uh dive into some of the the questions around it because i think people would be at least for me i got an enhanced and i think i i do I'm a student of history. Yeah, and uh, you're very knowledgeable on the subject of rights, oh, too. Oh, thank you. And so, but in this context, I thought it brought um, a kind of a, a very in- unique uh, insight into Canada's history. And I think um, Canadians would do well. Actually, it should be almost in a citizen te- citizenship test in terms of um, a number of these revelations. But we'll get to that in a moment. Um, so I have a few. I have a really basic question to a layperson. What really are civil rights? Is there a way to describe um, how profound that issue is for people? I believe what they are is it, it, they constitute a definition of what a, a sane adult citizen or even a sane adult visiting person authentically in the country has a right to do as an indisputable matter. And Mm -hmm. in general, we, we take this as including freedom of expression, as long as it uh, doesn't incite hatred, defame somebody else or, or uh, incite violence or offend standards of public decency. Apart from that, we're free to say anything we want. And uh, and rights of assembly, and then it goes on from there. But the, these, you know, the Americans say life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now that those are pretty general categories, mm-hmm. but but essentially it is the 
catalog of, of what a person is free to do. And naturally, because in a relatively free country, which Canada is, they're free to do almost anything that doesn't infringe upon the freedom of others. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore, in, instead of enumerating the rights, it has been our practice to enumerate what the limitations on rights are. Because apart from what are enumerated as limitations, we can do anything we want. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So these are not to be taken for granted because they are really foundational to our understanding of citizenship and how we're going to live together peacefully. And um, not only that, of course, that is true. But also in these current times, we find a, a shocking and potentially dangerous general disrespect in some circles mm-hmm. for rights and for the concept of rights and and the whole woke movement mm-hmm. in its more nihilistic and aggressive uh, versions is essentially putting up the proposition that rights are a sham they don't yeah. really exist it's just a cliche uh, that, that to take a phrase of marx in reference to religion is an opiate of the people. We just put mm-hmm. the people to sleep with this phony concept that they have yeah. right. And, exactly. Uh, and, and so it is in many ways uh, not a slumbering matter taken for granted, mm-hmm. but a vital subject whose importance and validity is under attack within, in some circles. Exactly. No, well said. So I did want to kind of touch brace briefly through kind of the chronology of the book a little bit, because I think people would find it quite interesting. But you you even go to uh, points of history before Canada was founded. You even talk about um, rights or the concept of rights among Canada's native peoples Yes. before. And I, I thought you had a very interesting take on that. What would you, are there, are there highlights there that you'd, you'd summarize? Uh, it, it, I don't think it's for me to say what might be interesting in that, but in, in fairness to the Native people, they did have a sort of a concept of this, mm-hmm. and and um, it varied, of course. I mean, the, the, there wasn't a unitary regime of the of the Aboriginal peoples in Canada prior to the arrival of the Europeans, but but they did grasp the idea, and and uh, you know they they weren't societies that wrote things down, but but there were practices in the tribes and bands and so on as i said they varied but in general you had as long as there was an adherence to the group and what the group required of you uh for example in marital matters or the equivalent Mm -hmm. of them uh it was perfectly understood that men and women would experiment with others of the opposite sex Mm -hmm. prior to the solemnization of any arrangement and Mm -hmm. this wasn't judged to be as it often was in contemporary European society, an immoral thing. It was mm-hmm. judged to be a reasonable thing to, before you embark on a life commitment to, to be confident of your compatibility with the, with your potential mate, you see. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it was not a, a concept to be despised, and they put some thought into it. And, um, uh, and then you got into the what we might it's a bit of a stretch, but broadly called the judicial process, which essentially was that there was a sort of justiciar, a kind of minister of justice in these mm-hmm. tribes, mm-hmm. but there was an appeal to the chief. Now, this, you know, they didn't write these things down, but this was the practice in most of these groups. And 
again, it it was it was not um, it was not an inferior level of development of the concept to let us say an absolute monarchy like the King of France, who was the mm-hmm. original uh, overseas uh, influence in in Canada. I mean, the French got here before anyone else. Mm-hmm. No, it, it's quite fascinating uh, that you reference that history, and I encourage people to read it. The other side to it is um, you set the stage then for. Uh, really the founding of, of Canada, the colonization of it, really through two, two um, key European powers, namely, of course, Great Britain and France, and how they brought their own unique traditions of civil rights to bear and really create this kind of um, uh, dual nature of civil rights in Canada, as you, as you allude to several times in the book. And I think that's a profound insight, which probably I suspect many Canadians don't really quite understand is there a way to to communicate um that dual nature uh you know I, I mean obviously that's a key theme of the book but how would you get at the differences between the quebec uh french tradition of civil rights versus the english uh british tradition of civil rights uh the french um it, 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 just let me give a historical um, fact that helps answer the question. Once the British took over the government of New France, now Quebec, um, the French discovered that they liked English criminal law. It was gentler and fairer. And it started from the presumption that people should be assumed not to be guilty and had to be proved to be guilty. And and there were relatively well-developed techniques for adducing the guilt or innocence of accused people. And and in general, at least officially uh, aggressive, or let us call things by their rightful names, that recourse to torture Mm -hmm. in the interrogation of suspects was not allowed. Now, that doesn't say it never happened. Let's not get too morally self-important as, <laughs> as Anglo-Saxons here, but in theory, that was, that, that was the regime. And, um, and, and naturally, the population of Quebec uh, found that relative liberality of the English system appealing, because at that time, the French prosecutors were free to, you know, they find a crimes occurred, the public is upset, they need to find somebody I mean, these are things that we mustn't delude ourselves. These things happen in our society yes. today to some degree. But yeah. the, the French, you know, the prosecutors in Quebec would say, right, well, the, the Jean-Pierre over there, I mean, frankly, I don't <laughs> like the cut of his jib and he, he's a, he <laughs> cheats and cards. So let's let's see if we can't break him down, you see. And then mm-hmm. if they find someone who they can... I'm not saying it was always like this, but Mm -hmm. it was notorious that there was a degree of um, liberty to the prosecutors to extract confessions in ways Mm -hmm. that frightened the public. And and, and so they when when the British governor, Carleton, Lord Dorchester, one Mm -hmm. of the great statesmen in Canadian history, along with Champlain, um, when when he saw being a very perceptive man uh, the drift of events in the american colonies 
and saw that the Americans were in, in not only veering towards independence, but being terribly mismanaged by London, mm -hmm. who had, whose officials hadn't a clue how to deal with the Americans, who <laughs> were who were the wealthiest Englishmen in the world. It was a flourishing mm -hmm. place, and and it was not happy with the degree of imposition of overseas control it was receiving. Um, by the way, I, I, not not to digress, but it was one of the great achievements in the history of diplomacy and in, in the entire history of diplomacy that Benjamin Franklin as a minister of Pennsylvania and several other colonies in London helped persuade the British government to evict the French from Canada and then and then uh, as as the revolutionary government's minister to France persuaded the French to help the Americans evict the British from America mm -hmm. I mean it, how he did this how he got the French, to go to war in favor of Republican democracy and <laughs> colonial secession uh, is it, it, it an astounding achievement. But, but mm -hmm. that has nothing to do with civil rights in Canada, except very incidentally. But mm -hmm. Carleton saw where it was proceeding, and he saw that the French, had, after a few years, had no particular loyalty to the British, and they would throw in with the Americans mm -hmm. unless a, a, an incentive was given to them not to. And um, and so he lobbied for four years as governor. He took mm -hmm. a leave of absence from Quebec and went and sat in, in London lobbying both houses of parliament and the king and successive governments uh, to pass the Quebec Act, which he basically wrote. And the basis mm -hmm. of it was that the British would guarantee the rights of Roman Catholics French-speaking people who were essentially the same thing at that time in Canada, and 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 respect the civil law that that they had inherited from France, mm -hmm. if the French Canadians would pledge allegiance to the British Crown, it was a genius arrangement. It really was, and both sides kept their word. And if the French hadn't done that, we wouldn't have kept. Canada independent of the American Revolution, mm -hmm. and we wouldn't have kept Canada independent in the War of 1812. Right. And, and so we have Carleton and Dorchester to thank for that. And look, I, look, I'm not saying there would have been a terrible fate to become Americans. It's a mm -hmm. great country. But mm -hmm. there would have been no Canada other than right. in the sense there's a Minnesota or a New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. but, you, but your point <laughs> is, is very interesting, um, Conrad, in the sense that you're looking at identifying some real nuances in terms of that leadership at the beginning and birthing of a nation, a self-governing nation with a high order of civil rights, they played a high order chess game, weaving between um, the ethos and emergence of a power, namely the, the United, a neighboring country, the United States, as they went through the revolution in 1776 and then 1812. So it wasn't necessarily a given that Canada would come into being. It was really truly a chess a complicated chess game that we were this very fortunate that this we had true. that kind of leadership isn't it yeah and now if i can go back to your question just add one other aspect to it uh, to my answer to it where we see this uh, fusion of the french and english influences in the concept of rights in this country most evidently is that the english because of the way the English governmental system evolved, uh, 
of the nobles claiming rights from the king and the Magna Carta and the uh, and William the Conqueror set up a system of local government and in order to undercut the power of the great nobles, he devolved more power down to local level. Mm -hmm. And and it wasn't because William the Conqueror, who in addition to being a conqueror, was a very talented and successful monarch. Um, it, it wasn't because he was a howling Democrat. It was because in, in the interplay of different levels of socioeconomic influence, he wanted to undercut the big nobles so his, you know, the crown of the country mm -hmm. would have more power. And he did it by pandering a bit to, to local influences. Mm -hmm. So th th you've got this tendency in English history that was favorable to individual rights, or at least right. local rights. Mm -hmm. And um, in France, for a variety of reasons, not least the Hundred Years' War, which was required for the French to expel the English from France, is when William the Conqueror came from Normandy, professed still to be uh, you know, to, to be the monarch in Normandy. So mm -hmm. you know, he was calling himself the king of France and England, which, which gradually became more and more anomalous with his successors, and finally the French threw the English out. But uh, in, in the process, the French monarchy became steadily more powerful, mm -hmm. and it was judged to be necessary to build the country and hold its frontiers. Now, that wasn't a problem in England because it's an island, and uh, the Scots weren't numerous enough to challenge the independence of England as long as the, as long as the English controlled the English Channel. They weren't going to be invaded. So um, what you have in the French system is a development of collective rights, mm -hmm. concept of collective rights. And right. you see that even when the revolution came and they spoke of liberty and equality and mm -hmm. fraternity, but not each individual having, to take the American phrase, the right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Although mm -hmm. ideally the, the, the difference would be a, a distinction without a difference, but mm -hmm. that isn't always how it works. So just as an example, um, the longest-serving premier of Quebec, Maurice Duplessis, produced legislation in the 30s and 40s that um, restricted the rights of communists, for example. Mm -hmm. Well, now this was popular because 99.8% of Quebecers, French, English, or anything else, uh, were anti-communist. So it, you know, it's good politics. If you're doing something, 99.8% mm -hmm. of people think, well, that's a pretty right. good idea. <laughs> yeah, why not? It's a free lunch, you know, politically. So, um, uh, but then some people objected that they, you know, the, the minister, the attorney general of the province, who happened to be Duplessis himself, he was premier right. and attorney general, um, <laughs> could say, right, uh, that fellow Lees, I think he's a bit of a lefty, so we're going to confiscate the <laughs> We're going to confiscate the communist literature in his office, and we're going to put a padlock on his office for a year. Mm -hmm. We won't arrest him. He has a right to be a communist, mm -hmm. but he does not have a right to disseminate communist propaganda. He's, he's offending the, the, the majority. And, and so when English Quebec civil rights leaders like Frank Scott, the dean of law at McGill University, said, wait a minute here. This man has his rights. You can't just padlock this place of business mm -hmm. for a year. Duplessis said, you know, in complete sincerity, you say, he said, well, what are you talking about? Are you mm -hmm. mad? Are you, are you going to let these people exploit mm -hmm. the liberties of democracy to attack <laughs> democracy? You must be mad. 
Yeah. And, and it, you know, it's a different philosophical view. And, right. and so we've tried to blend them together and more or less successfully. Um, but in the more recent times, these tribunals on human rights mm-hmm. are muddying the waters, as, as you know, and the, your institution has, has mm-hmm. done some work on this. Valuable. That's right. And, and yeah. you know, it, we're, if, if we get non-judicial, quasi-judicial panels saying, uh, David Lees, of course, has the perfect right of anyone else to freedom of expression. However, we think that he is implicitly mocking people with red hair who part their hair on the left. Right. And, and, and on their behalf, we're going to fine him five hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we get this clash between the conjured. I'm making an absurd example of it, but mm-hmm. the conjured cause of an offended group and the rights of an individual and, and we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're just starting to get to grips with that in this country now yeah but no, it, the it's... ultimate origin of it was in the french english division exactly and and i think so for me that was a uh the book gives more clarity in one's mind about these two different kind of legal civil rights traditions between the in you know the more the individualistic emphasis from the english tradition and the more group accommodation of rights uh, in Quebec. And, and this helps explain some of the frustration that Canadians feel with each other. They say, well, how is Quebec getting away with this <clears throat> English law? And meanwhile, the federal government is silent when it comes to basically um, uh, almost the, 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 uh, the legislative effort to punt uh, English entirely out of the Quebec scene. It's, it's outrageous, isn't it? It's completely outrageous. And I think there the fault really lies with the federal government because it is the federal government's task to defend its prerogatives yes. as vigorously as the provinces defend theirs. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, there is no question that what Quebec is now doing is unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I give you an example. Let's say you were visiting in Montreal and you wanted to, you, you, you wanted to send a book of big book to I, i'm just making this up but say to mm-hmm. so it was a sizable package and you wanted to send it to for argument's sake germany so you went to a canada post office in let us say west Mount, a 85 percent english-speaking mm-hmm. district in montreal and uh, arrived at the post office and said i'm sorry I, I don't know the right amount of postage to put this i want to send it by airmail to germany mm-hmm. and the person there even though he is an employee of the government of canada operating the national post service doesn't have to reply to you in english he he and now in practice i'm sure they would out of courtesy mm-hmm. but in fact they don't have to and mm-hmm. it's only a matter of time before some aggressive and and sort of irritating separatist poser in a job right. like that <laughs> instead of replying to you in english babbles away in right. french deliberately designed to be incomprehensible to anyone mm-hmm. who doesn't understand that you know, the, the subtleties of the Argo and the, the you know, the Patois in that province. Uh, and, and so you haven't a clue how much postage you're to put on it. And, and, and we're going to get to that. And mm-hmm. it is because of Ottawa allowing this. They, they are, I have rather uh, almost silently joined mm-hmm. lawsuits 
is disputing the constitutionality of the Quebec language law. But, uh, and, and, and there, in my opinion, there's no doubt that ultimately the federal courts will determine it's not constitutional. Mm-hmm. But it's really a political game that, that, I mean, Quebec is the second largest province and it elects a lot of MPs, 78, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are we, 335 now or something like that? Right. And, and, um, uh, and historically, the federal government has been very careful about challenging the government of Quebec on issues like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there was a, you know, I mentioned the padlock law earlier. It was a cause celebre in the 30s. And at the same time, there was a law in Alberta setting up a bank. And that's a federal prerogative yes, also. right. So, so the, the, uh, the, um, the Minister of Justice, Ernest Lapointe, for Mr. King, the Prime mm-hmm. Minister, ultimately determined they would not challenge the Quebec law, but they would challenge the Alberta law. And as I pointed out in my biography of Duplessis, the fact that the federal government had 62 members of parliament in Quebec and one in Alberta might have had something to do exactly. with it. Exactly. I don't mean to labor this point, but when, yeah. you know, as, as you know, and most of your viewers would, the... Uh, uh, under the British North America Act and the Constitution Act that succeeded it, there is a concurrent right of the federal and provincial governments in direct taxes. Mm-hmm. They have an equal right to collect an income tax. And this wasn't respected in practice. And finally, in 1955, Duplessis said, look, we have the responsibility to pay for education. We have to pay for the mm-hmm. social safety net. And you're not letting us exercise our tax rights so we can pay for it properly. So I'm going to impose a provincial income tax, which I have every right to do. And if you don't grant its deductibility for the purpose of calculating federal income tax on Quebecers, Mm -hmm. I'll call an election and we'll see who wins. And with that, the federal government backed down. It was only then the federal government in 1955 conceded that the provinces had some right to direct taxes, even though it's clear and has been clear since the 1st of July, 1867, that they did. Yeah, no, it, it's it's fascinating history. And those are powerful illustrations that show the tension between these traditions, but also the danger that there's all this political pandering. And uh, we really do need principled leadership, including a federal government speaking up for the civil rights of all Canadians, including English speakers in um, in Quebec or wherever they are. But one of the things I, I did want to um, just reference to briefly was the incredible history you point out about slavery in Canada. And I was actually quite stunned by Canada's incredible history of harboring um, uh, fugitives from the Civil War. Uh, I think that's a, a really remarkable story, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, well, not so much the Civil War, but from from fugitive slaves prior to the Civil War. Yes, and, and as well. I mean, you know, once the Civil War started, you know, Lincoln welcomed fugitive slaves into the northern states. But mm-hmm. uh, prior to that, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, we received 40,000 fugitive wow. slaves. Now, this was at a time when our total population in Canada was was not more than 2 million. Mm-hmm. So it was a significant number of people, uh, and um, and they 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 had no statutory infringement on their rights at all. Now, in practice, mm-hmm. some let us say restaurateurs or hoteliers might have said, "Look, I'm sorry, but we really don't want dark-skinned people here." But mm-hmm. which is 
you know, was their right. They're the proprietors mm-hmm. of the hotel. They can let in who they want. But yeah. but in but it wasn't a, a question where there was any restriction on the rights of movement or assembly or speech mm-hmm. or anything like that. And so uh, these 40,000 people used to write back to their former owners and in, in, in large numbers, you know, in the southern states and say, you know, I'm sitting here in front of a fire in my house that I own <laughs> and my son has just come home from school and is literate and well-treated and and not bullied by the other students mm-hmm. and it just reminds me of what an awful regime you've got down there now right. that that wouldn't be exactly their words but the, the, the i in my history of canada i published part of a letter to that effect and mm-hmm. this was this was well known in the, amongst the slave population mm-hmm. in the u.s if you could get to canada you were home free and um for example in the revolutionary war even though the americans won the war at at by the end of it, a couple of thousand uh, American slaves had deserted to the British. And at that point, uh, Carleton, whom I mentioned earlier, uh, who went on to be governor of Canada, was the commander of the British forces. And General George Washington demanded that the mm-hmm. fugitive slaves be handed over. And Carleton said, absolutely not. Yeah. Absolutely wow. not. We're not Amazing. putting them back into slavery. And, and, um, and and he won that point. Uh-huh. Uh, Carlton did, but but the the um, it's also the leaders of the anti-slavery movement who took refuge in Canada. You know Harriet Tubman, who's now on the American yes. twenty-dollar bill. She displaced General Andrew Jackson. Uh-huh. Um, she lived in Canada for I think fifteen years. Mm-hmm. John Brown, a very famous folkloric figure in the U.S., who was ultimately hanged for staging that revolt of Harper's Ferry just outside mm-hmm. Washington in uh, in 1857, mm-hmm. um, uh, run down and brought to justice by General Robert E. Lee. By the way, uh, he lived in Canada for a time, mm-hmm. and the 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 main role in Uncle Tom's Cabin, Harriet Beecher Stowe's book that sold an astounding two million copies in the 1850s uh henson he lived in canada Uh, so we actually had quite an active role and Uh and the american federal government was not in the hands of southerners at that point in the 1850s appeasement appeasers of the south Uh but not southerners so they didn't bother us very much and then excuse me when lincoln came in uh, he was he actually thanked canada for its services and also for for refusing to allow confederate uh, agents and border raiders to Mm -hmm. to operate in canada so canada was on the right side morally on that issue Mm -hmm. and on the right side ultimately politically because of course in the end slavery was abolished and those who would oppose slavery all along were in in good odor now Mm -hmm. the exact opposite was on the american southern border mm-hmm. where where uh, uh, you know napoleon the third took advantage of the american civil war to to set up a puppet regime in mexico and lincoln warned him through the ambassador mm-hmm. that right. as soon as the united states had settled its own house it was not going to tolerate the french in mexico mm-hmm. and of course two years after the civil war ended the french mm-hmm. the so-called french emperor of mexico uh, you know, it was put in front of a firing squad, and the and French was, were sent uh, packing. Was that Maximilian? 
Yeah, who was a brave yeah. man, and but he was right. just a, a pawn for Napoleon the mm-hmm. Third, and then he was abandoned by everybody. He was he was a fine man. He wasn't a bad yeah. person. So, so the point is that that history is worth remembering as we celebrate a country with really quite a distinguished history of civil rights, including on the issue of slavery, among so many other things. Yes, and um, and and that's why we name different. Um, uh, edifices around Canada, whether it's roads, whether it's statues, all kinds of things to commemorate that kind of leadership that enabled exactly. our country to actually come together against, I'm not going to say this, but most odds, if not all odds. Yeah. I mean, after the Civil War, the, the, the standing army, and you make this point, of the United States could have just simply marched into Canada. Would have, it would have been all over in a matter of a week. The Grand Army of the Republic, <clears throat> an army of 600,000 battle-hardened soldiers led by General Grant and General Sherman, <clears throat> in, a, in a phrase of Jefferson's from a generation before, a mere matter of marching. Yeah. You know, have, having defeated Robert E. Lee, uh, with all due respect, uh, right. uh, the, the militia of Canada wouldn't have lasted one week against such a force. So in that context, that's why we commemorate our leaders in this way, and yet there's such a, an aggressive movement by some, it's almost like they are not even aware of history. It doesn't really matter, the facts. Not only not aware of it, David, unfortunately, we're, we're finding instances where they are aware, but, but deny it. They, 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 they want to simply rewrite history mm-hmm. to our disbenefit, you see. Right. Yeah. And if it's white and successful, it, it, it must be exploitative yeah. and evil. So don't bother us with this nonsense that we were helpful to slaves. If we were helpful to slaves, it was only because we wanted uh, cheap labor or we wanted to thumb our noses mm-hmm. at the Americans. It had nothing to do with us having any respect for human dignity, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which was indeed directly contradicted in a statement that uh, Abraham Lincoln made to George Etienne Cartier when he visited mm-hmm. uh, And And, uh, you know, we can safely leave that judgment to Mr. Lincoln and not to the woke myth makers of yeah, the current day. Exactly. So so within this context, and I don't mean this um, rhetorically or lightly, but how do you view this? I mean, you have um, uh, people pulling down statues like the one in, at uh, the, you know, the statue of, of um, Victoria, obviously at the Manitoba legislature, it still hasn't been put back up. Um, and and a lot they of take this... down the statue of Queen Victoria in Victoria, B.C.? Or they moved it or something. Yes, that's right. And, and, and certainly Sir John A. MacDonald, um, which who we'll get to in a moment. But, it, but in this context, what do you see happening there? Is it almost like the school of history a la Marxism, where it's all through the oppressed oppressor lens? And so facts really don't matter as well. But it's pushing that narrative um, even though it's divorced or not, it's, it's ungrounded in what really happened. But it's, it's pushing that narrative. And then, of course, you've got an army of activists who are happy to, to buy that. But they don't even know that, that history. What's going you, on you've there? You've got this very infelicitous combination of naive and credulous people with, with uh, uh, cynical charlatans with, mm. with outright evil. You've got three groups here. Yeah. And, and I think the numbers of them uh, 
descend in the orders I named them. I think there are mm -hmm. large numbers of credulous people who aren't bad people or just misinformed and don't understand. There are smaller numbers of people who are cynics exploiting mm -hmm. a situation and very small numbers who yeah. are absolutely evil and trying to destroy our society. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I, 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 these are, as you know, terribly complicated issues of mass psychology. And yeah. I don't want to be glib about them, but I, I, I think, again, I'll take a phrase from, from Lincoln. In his second inaugural, he said, everyone knew that in some way slavery was the cause of the Civil War. Well, mm -hmm. I, I put it to you that anyone who analyzes this can, can surmise that part of the problem is that when the West won the greatest and most bloodless strategic victory in the history of the world in the cold war when our great mm -hmm. rival and adversary right simply disintegrated fell like a souffle without a shot being fired by anybody mm -hmm. uh there was no enemy there was no challenge there was a, there, at no point was anyone saying no politician no father of a family no school teacher nobody was saying we, we have to be careful uh, there are forces in the world that want that want to overthrow our society and replace it with a, uh, a dictatorial system. All that went, and and I, to some extent, I think a a vacuum uh, it was created where, in the absence of a rivalry and a challenge mm -hmm. from outside, one developed from inside, and I think it probably started positively enough with people saying well look that's all very well but let's not be blind to the fact there are imperfections in our mm -hmm. society that's mm -hmm. a good thing by all yes. means let's not be blind to it and let's do what we can about it but it 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 has gradually been allowed through through the um the failures of our opinion leaders both the political leadership and the media and the mm -hmm. academy uh, including yeah as they say, K-12 and the universities, or K-13, whatever it is, um, the, the, because of no pushback, there's no one saying, well, wait a minute here, let's keep some sense of proportion. I mean, yes, there are problems in our society, and let's work on them. But, let, but you know, Mr. Churchill's famous statement that democracy is the worst system except for all the others, and nobody's saying that. So they're pushing on an open door, and they're saying, well, look here, uh, you know, you were impolite to the Japanese Canadians during the mm -hmm. war, which we were. But Brian Mulroney made restitution for that, uh, and which the Americans never did. And they treated their Japanese descendant citizens much mm -hmm. more severely than we treated ours. And and um, instead of you know, instead of saying, well, let's you know, just by all means, let's focus on our imperfections, but let's not jeopardize the good things, which mm -hmm. which are the reason that we don't have a foreign enemy because we do have a fundamentally better system than, mm -hmm. than our rival side, you know, than, than Soviet communism. And, and, um, and our leadership has allowed this erosion to take place. Mm -hmm. But I, I, think, I think you now see, particularly in the United States, which is usual in these matters, is, you know, it's such an influential country, you get to the cutting edge of things faster there and of course they they have the legacy of slavery that makes it a much more um potentially volatile uh, society i mean in this country at least anyone who is here that person or their ascendants came here voluntarily 
There's no history in Canada of people being seized where they were and transported here mm-hmm. as the slaves were in the U.S. Yeah. And, and so, and, and, and as I say, I mean, despite the best efforts of former Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin and others to claim we had slavery in Canada, as far as, as I can see, there were never more than 100 slaves in Canada, and they weren't indentured menial agricultural labor mm-hmm. of a punishing nature that they were household servants and things like that I, when we're talking about 100 people or less in fact i think 60 was like height mm-hmm. of it and and for example I'm, I'm i realize i'm being a bit um, uh, syncopated in my approach here but john brave simcoe when he was governor of upper canada yes. as set up in 1791 he said any slave who was transported into this jurisdiction, Upper Canada, Ontario, is automatically emancipated. And what year was that? 1791. And, and not he did it in advance of what the British Empire did. Yeah. And he took it upon himself and no one challenged it. Right. So, I mean, this was 76 years before we were an independent country. So where the former chief justice gets off saying Canada has a history of slavery, right. I mean, that's if when you have the chief justice saying rubbish mm-hmm. like that, you yeah. can't entirely blame a high school teacher in, you know, Kelowna or Etobicoke or wherever right. you want. Say exactly. Like so, so history does matter, particularly as people use it as a kind of a, a weapon, a cudgel, if you will. Well, I- I- ignorance of it is dangerous because yes. it's important to know historical facts. I mean, I'm digressing here, but in the great controversies of Palestine, the rights of the Palestinians mm-hmm. are based on the promises of the British, not any rights they ever exercised in that territory themselves. Right. Exactly. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not anti-Palestinian, but we should mm-hmm. recognize there, as in our own country and elsewhere, we should recognize the historical facts that gave rise to the contending forces that we have to deal with now. Indeed. So if we look at the contemporary context of civil rights in Canada, we can't take them for granted. And it's clear that in many respects, they're being eroded. I mean, I think that you allude to those points as you look at, um, well, say how the trucker's convoy was treated or how during COVID-19. Jordan Peterson is treated, the greatest public intellectual in the country, the, the most famous Canadian in the world. So you have these regulatory, quote, professional bodies um, hammering people relentlessly on basic issues around their voice as professionals to voice their insights on, on a myriad of issues. So they're, they're squelching debate or basic freedoms of, of, of speech everywhere you turn. I, I'm afraid that is true. And, and, and as long as public opinion tolerates it, it will go on. I mean, anyone, whether it's mischievous children or insubordinate workers mm-hmm. or uh, people in great offices will, will, will do whatever they can get away mm-hmm. with. I mean, it, it, there is the unusual person who has a natural sense of balance and fairness and, and, and is always conscious of such limitations. But in general, you know, if the teacher leaves the classroom for three hours, he's going to find mayhem when he comes back. Mm-hmm. If the uh, if if the if you just eliminate the police, every every store and half the homes in the jurisdiction will be robbed eventually. I, I mean, people do what they can get away with, up to a point. But I, I think then 
what you're alluding to is, is really quite important for people to open their eyes up is that not only do we have this incredible history and nothing is perfect, there are ups and downs on all these files of, of civil rights, but there's this third element now, whether it's a, a foreign ideology, call it Marxism, a kind of a nutty postmodernism, whatever you want to call it, that is also being used for political purposes. Is it not to uh, pander to different groups and to basically, like, how is it that we would have, and I remember you telling me this, that when you were in London a few years ago, when there was the quote, discovery of mass graves in Kelowna, and there's still no shred of evidence around that. You're right. Um, and, and at that very moment that we spoke in London, uh, our flag at uh, Trafalgar Square at Canada yeah. House was at half mass. This had remained for six yeah. months. My for British six months. Kept saying to me, did, did you have a bunch of former prime ministers die in succession? What's going on? You know, so, the, I mean, so this is a, a powerful case study because the the narrative continues that there are these mass graves and, you know, it was a horrifying uh, idea that this, this was there. If it happened, but let's find the evidence. So part of civil rights is that we follow the rule of law, is it not? That we follow evidence, we don't just assert things. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, and as you know, you, as a matter of law, you can't defame the dead. You know, you, I mean, you, yeah. you, there's no one to, there's no, when a person dies, there's no one to sue mm -hmm. on that person's behalf if utter lies and malicious lies are uttered about him. But uh, the, the flip side of that is that people can simply rewrite our history on no evidence at all, portraying our ancestors mm -hmm. as a bunch of barbarians and savages who, by malice or negligence, were responsible for the deaths of <clears throat> a large number of children. Mm -hmm who happened to be of the indigenous peoples mm -hmm. and, and confect this tale without, as you said, a shred of evidence. Yeah. We, even though $27 million were voted by the Parliament of Canada to find out what was in these graves, mm -hmm. it, it, nothing has been done. I, I mean, we don't know if they are graves. We don't know if, if there are people in them. If there are, we don't know who they were. But we do know this. No one, not one of those children in, in those schools, and, and the death rate from tuberculosis, even in prosperous families of that time, uh -huh. uh, was quite high. So young people did die more than they do now. Um, none of them was unrecorded. When a, when a child died in a residential school, it was recorded. So the whole story is a uh -huh. fraud, uh -huh. and, and a fraud that is being willfully perpetuated. And, and made the subject of frightful lamentations, which would be justified if, there's, if, if it was a true story. But, but we are, in fact, defaming our own ancestors. It, it, it's really well said. I mean, it, it's very disturbing because, um, like you uh, and, and, and a number of others, you'll probably have read uh, the entire Truth and Reconciliation report of some 3,400 pages. And it's almost like there's an intellectual um, sleight of hand, <laughs> to put it politely, that's gone on, where the, the summary report is often perceived as the report of some 300 pages. Because I have asked so many people, including journalists, have you read the report? And they say, yes, we have. 
So you've read the entire report of 3,200 pages. And they say, pardon me, what, what do you mean? Yeah. So there but, is... And as, you, it, it, and as your institute has pointed out, the, the report, the, the summary in the first volume, it takes considerable liberties with the supporting indeed. evidence. And in fact, departs from it in a number of yeah. places. So but this is a, there, a, you know, in fairness to Sinclair and the rest of them, and and they they certainly played this violin for all it was worth. And I'm not I'm not saying they have no grievances. I'm mm -hmm. just saying that <clears throat> some of them are exaggerated. But uh, he didn't get into any reference to genocide. He, he didn't do mm -hmm. that. That, right. that that's that's some of these uh, uh, really uh, discreditable people who've come in afterwards. Mm -hmm. So it is a remarkable uh, place that Canada's at because civil rights then relates to, for example, the area of civil rights in, in Aboriginal history. And you go through that in the book. It's, it's long and, and, and evolves. What I found particularly interesting is the, the 1969 paper <clears throat> done by uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, the prime minister, and of course, uh, uh, Jean Chrétien, the minister at the time. That Who really adopted a native child. Indeed, yes, and and really articulated a really um, quite a, a, a an ambitious vision to basically integrate um, Aboriginal people with respect as any other Canadian, which um, is what John A. Macdonald wanted to do, and for which his his statue is being taken down. Ironically, and so <laughs> what I found fascinating is that I would think that. In many Canadians' mind's eye, they would assume that that is the kind of official policy of Canada is to try to treat everyone with respect, including Aboriginal people, and to integrate them as full Canadians with full civil rights and freedoms. But that's yeah, not that's I, I not the case, that. is it? Is is that right? Um, I believe it is. Yeah, and and. Um... But then, as you know, the I mean, at that time, they refer to in 1968, when Tr Pierre Trudeau came in as prime minister, people who joined the what was then called the Ministry of Indian Affairs mm -hmm. uh, uh, had to sign a paper saying they understood that the department was apt to be wound down and they would be without a job. Then then in due course, the whole position changed completely. And and the objective of that ministry whose name changed was to reinforce the the native people in their separateness you know okay and, well, so just 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 for a sec there conrad so i wasn't fully aware of that you're saying that in 1968 when Pierre Elliott trudeau came into power he asserted that they were going to close and wind up um INAC, indian native affairs canada that's right and, and, and there was and, a backlash within the department to say no we're going to continue. So uh, that's fascinating. Is that is that? Yeah, what yeah. and and not only that, they they um, uh, they they adopted entirely the view that the greatest service that could be performed for the natives was to assist them. Obviously, they were welcome to maintain any customs they wanted, and any you know, just as arriving immigrant groups. Mm -hmm. you know, the the federal government's been quite generous in supporting cultural centers for. You know, Italian Canadians mm -hmm. and so forth, you know, different different groups, all, all for it. It's a good thing. Uh, well, they were going to maintain that, and the and the native people were welcome to keep all that. But but the whole thrust of our uh, 
government initiative on this subject was going to be to assist them in having complete, free, equal access to Canadian life. Mm-hmm. You see, and and um, and, and they, basically the position that the Trudeau Pierre Trudeau government took at the beginning was, as far as I can see, practically identical to what was the platform on this issue of the Reform Party, mm-hmm. which was that essentially the native benefit program should be integrated into the welfare program of the country generally. Right. And and in this one issue, the original Pierre Trudeau, I mean, original as, a, as, as prime minister, and, and the Reform Party were saying the same thing. It's not uh, fascinating. What, 30 years apart or something like that. So, 20 years. What, I think the, the point, though, is that as you go through the book, you give a, um, a, a very interesting summation then of the evolution of that policy of um, Aboriginal policy and how increasingly it's no longer that vision at all about integration. It's a vision of separation, of, of um, additional... Um, uh, benefits, uh, citizen plus plus. It, but it's it's almost segregation of sorts. As uh, uh, am uh, I misreading uh, this? Segregation and uh, elevation, in a way. You know, you you, yeah. you you segregate them to elevate them, not to suppress them. But the uh, to me, the cycle moved very quickly and very completely because the. Commission set up by Brian Mulroney had reported mm-hmm. when Kretschmer was had had followed him, but uh, set up by Brian, led by Mr. Erasmus and Mr. Dusso. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, uh, something very close to that, is the name of it. They ended up concluding, and as far as I know, Tom Flanagan and I are the only people that regularly publicize this fact mm-hmm. that. That is the last Royal Commission or Commission of Competent, uh, similar authority in terms of reference, mm-hmm. to report. And it, as I say, it brought its report down in, in Kretschan's time in the mid-90s. But um, they, they advocated selecting approximately one-third of the entire territory of Canada, approximately a million square miles in, in, in different not not in one coherent mm-hmm. section of the country, but spread about all over, and linking them together as a notional independent country, an independent country of one third of our territory, wow. inhabited by the approximately uh, what is it three and a half percent of Canadians who claim to have to be native originated, mm-hmm. and and um, and it that that one third of the country would at the expense of the other two thirds be brought up to a level of infrastructure equal to the rest of Canada and would never pay taxes. The population, wow. the native people would live in, you know, three, three and a half percent of the country would live in 33% of its territory in a, in a fully modernized and serviced area. And the rest of us would pay the bills for this. And the wow. others would go on into eternity without paying tax. Now, that actually is what this outfit reported. And, and now it, it was so preposterous that it, it, it's sort of the, the nonsense that dare not speak its name. Nobody mm-hmm. ever refers to this. And it was your, your report 
that 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 brought that that was when i read that that was the first i saw of it i looked into it i actually mm-hmm. got a hold of this report uh, i mean not that i didn't believe you but i wanted to see i just wanted to see for myself what it mm-hmm. said and that's what it said but you people were the first to popularize or at least right. make available that fact after i mean that report was made and it just died i mean even kretchen wasn't gonna touch that one i was yeah. like a you know a, a, a nugget of krypton on the ground no one was gonna yeah. touch it so so it, it, it's a bit complicated, but if, if you think of that kind of vision of basically a separation and elevation, as you're calling it. And, and, and uh, turning the yeah. country into a Swiss cheese. Indeed, but yes. It's almost like a... The pockets in it. It kind of a... a it's hard to know what, what kind of nation could actually function no, under that kind of regime. The answer to that question is no function. No nation can function that way. It's just nonsense. But this is where it becomes almost a, a strange thread that is now being picked up by, again, the usual suspects of, of people that are, frankly, Marxists. They look at it as a, a, a country of deep racism and, and endless oppression, and it's all it, evil, and therefore should be ripped down. And merely because they keep repeating it. Yes, exactly. I mean, how, do you know, how do you know the country is racist? Well, because everyone says it's racist. Yes, but it no, is it. racist. Do you, do you know? I, I mean, I, I don't. It didn't matter. I, I wasn't paid for it. But even if I was, it wouldn't have mattered. But I appeared every week on a on a radio station here in Toronto for about ten minutes, talking to a very amusing and you know intelligent announcer, mm-hmm. and we would knock around whatever subject was up that week, mm-hmm. you know, and have have, have some fun with it, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I just made the point in passing that Canada is not a systemically racist country. Yes. I said, I'm not saying there are no racists in it, but it is not a racist country. It's a country where the overwhelming majority of people, including all official uh, institutions and and, and, Mm -hmm. uh, documents, governing institutions, oppose racism. Mm -hmm. Uh, For this, I was sacked. How dare I say that Canada is wow. not a racist country? I was Utter fired nonsense. for making a pro-Canadian nonsense. happens to be true. Yeah. My, my friend Mark Stein quit in, in, in solidarity with me. No, it, it's, it's utterly bizarre. So in that context, we have to be vigilant as Canadians and to really understand both our history and our civil rights and not take them for granted because of all mm. these kinds of ways of undermining the basic understandings of that that history, as we say. So I, I guess looking at the context today, and I do recommend the book, it would be a great Christmas gift uh, for people. Um, but I, I think what I look at this, um, you point out well um, how in the COVID-19 context, um, there were civil rights violations. And how do we learn from those violations and what what were they in your mind? <laughs> Of course, that is a very challenging area because everyone, or practically everyone, would agree that in a in a genuine public medical emergency, you, you may have to override some liberties. I mean, in, mm-hmm. in the interests of the physical health of the right. mental health of, of the society. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think most people would concede in the abstract that, that such a thing may be necessary. Uh, so it. it in or, but in order to take the drastic step of curtailing people's liberties, you have to be more confident of the medical requirements, the, the public interest, 
than than it is normally possible to be in the case of a pandemic involving an illness that we haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so it, it is, to be fair to the people trying to navigate through it, it's a difficult situation. Now, with that said, I think there's increasing evidence that there was untruthfulness and possibly corruption in in in, mm-hmm. in the United States in this issue. I mean, the fact of the um, National Institute of Health subsidizing the laboratory in Wuhan Mm-hmm. And and in cooperation with the World Health Organization, effectively trying to suppress for some time suspicion that it wasn't something from a from a market at all. Mm-hmm. It was something that escaped from the laboratory. Uh, that that puts the context, at least in the United States, in a in a less uh, promising light. I mean, it mm-hmm. looks like there was deliberate official wrongdoing. Now we do, we can't judge people other than after due process and there hasn't been due process but that's how it mm-hmm. works a bit here in canada i think we were kind of following uh, what the americans did exactly. and now in the united states what happened was heavily influenced by the political context and the democrats controlled the congress and they were mm-hmm. demanding the shutdown because they wanted to hang around trump's neck the resulting economic problems uh so so the the idea of a uh, a national united effort lasted about a week and after that it was trump's pandemic and you know mm-hmm. it was all let's beat up trump exactly uh, but in, in this country we had something that in a way i found just as odious which was justin trudeau taking great credit for his leadership in this medical crisis mm-hmm. uh public health crisis which he didn't deserve. He signed us on to a Chinese vaccine that never worked. Mm-hmm. We were very late getting the vaccine because of that. Uh, and, and then he ultimately held an election based on his brilliant performance and was reelected to my astonishment because I thought his performance was poor. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I thought he, he moved late, you know, made the wrong alliance with China, and, and, uh, and, and we were much too restricted. Now, mm-hmm. some of it was provincial and some of it was municipal. I mean, here in Toronto, we had the then mayor, John Tory, shutting the parks. There was no reason to shut the parks. Wow. What are we doing? And and and, um, and and there was no, we've discovered eventually that children didn't transmit it. Very exactly. Much. Yeah. So, so there was no reason to shut the elementary schools at all. <laughs> So, but in fairness, I think those were honest errors, but yeah. we should recognize them as honest errors. But, um, but, but attributing blame there on restricting civil rights, I, I think we have to, we have to cut some slack to people trying to deal with a, a situation that there wasn't a, a useful precedent for. Mm-hmm. We didn't know everything that we now know about COVID, and and uh, and and there was on balance i would accept the principle on a thing like that you're better to react um overly uh comprehensively than mm-hmm. than insufficiently yeah. uh, i mean if, if it had been a more pernicious disease where where the death rate was higher mm-hmm. uh, then then you know we would have been we would have been grateful for what yeah but but, but I, I think uh I, I think we need a, a mechanism for introducing the information that we learn as quickly as we can and uh, adjusting to that. I mean, you saw the famous business in New York where um, uh, 
the the the, the governor um, Cuomo uh, didn't know whether a discharged COVID uh, patients were being sent back to homes for the elderly if that's where they came from. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, that's where most of the deaths were, and th- and that that policy of sending them back there did cause a lot of people to die. I, I don't think you can even accuse the governor of negligence. He didn't know. But mm-hmm. but on the other hand, if they'd assimilated the information and evaluated it more quickly, they would have known. At exactly. least so when you refer to um, COVID-19, I, I think it's a, a good reflection on it. I mean, part of it is that we can learn lessons from these things and think of the mechanisms. And I think one of our uh, uh, friends at Frontier is Dr. Brian Schwartz, and he's uh, just come out with a um, a release about how to um, uh, encourage the re-enlightenment of Canada. And one of those mechanisms is really looking at how we ensure that emergency legislation really does offer transparent information and uh, to set the stage for healthy debate about what is really going on. Um, we know these situations are dynamic, but more than ever, we need information. So on that note, we just had the uh, federal government coming out with uh, not only um, a second phase of media funding, but an enhanced set of media funding for really the mainstream media. Um, And I think there's some 2,000 outlets across Canada that are funded now by the federal government. It's really quite remarkable. It's creeping, you know, It's it's a mission creep. It, 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 it's, it's mission creed. So can you have civil rights in a society that is funding uh, the, the, the media, this estate that you, more than anyone else knows about, needs to be in their lane, in their mission, uh, holding truth to power. And yet you've got the, the, the federal government right in there funding all these parties. Is it possible to have civil rights then? Well, I, get, I think it's possible, but it, but it's, it becomes more complicated. And I, I think, um, look, I, I, I suppose the case can be made that public assistance to certain media outlets that aren't commercially viable can be justified. I, for for one thing, I think <clears throat> in Canada, I think you can get, you can justify the concept of public broadcasting, but I think the way it's been conducted at the moment is not remotely adequate. But um, so I, I think the answer is yes, the civil rights can coexist with this, but you are taking unnecessary chances the way we're doing it. I mean, I don't think the country has any idea of the extent of funding of, of newspapers. Mm-hmm. When, when it started, it was a relatively modest thing for mm-hmm. commercially distressed newspapers. But it is gradually creeping up to the point where the government is becoming a, a, a very serious influence, potentially. And, and you know, we cannot, we absolutely cannot get to the point where the media is controlled by the state. Because I mean, they, we already have the CBC. We already have. Yeah, but the CBC's market share doesn't constitute yeah. control of the media. Mm-hmm. But if we're going to end up with, with you know, the, the end of basically all the print media being paid for by the government and administered by politically appointed people, then I, I, I think you might still have some 
detritus of civil rights, but you're not going to have much of a democracy. Exactly. So we're we're in the home stretch here, Conrad. We've had really a quite a an interesting conversation, sweeping from history all the way to the current day. And and I can't help but ask you about. Um, you've alluded to the, the the incredible history of the the Middle East that frames up the um, situation with uh, Hamas and and Israel, the the uh, horrible terrorist attacks on October seven. So were you surprised? by the levels of anti-Semitism and violence in our own country against the Jewish community. I was. I was. On the other hand, um, for obvious reasons, there, there are inadequate, there's inadequate research about this, but I am satisfied that an inordinate amount of it was the, the reaction of Muslim immigrants to Canada or visitors to Canada Mm -hmm. and um, and that they were mobilized as part of the strategy of the Palestinian uh, nationalist organizations a sort of phase two they they must have known that the uh, reaction of Israel to such horrors as those of October 7 would be very severe and that in general, the world would understand the motivation of the Israelis. And so their their next step was to wrong foot the, the international Jewish community and its sympathizers and represent what was going on as objections to an illegal occupation. And I, I think that most of what passed for anti-Semitism was based on the idea that Israel was occupying Palestinian land and therefore uh, brought some of October 7 on itself. And therefore, the Israeli reaction was excessive. Now, this is rubbish, of course. It is complete Uh and utter rubbish. But I think a lot of the people who tended to give an indulgent atmosphere or relatively serene response to these anti-Semitic demonstrations and, and actions. We're, we're acting out of being misinformed by our dear media, which don't present the facts in the Middle mm-hmm. East very accurately. And um, so, so I, 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 in my opinion, the apparent anti-Semitism, now maybe I'm being an optimist, but my opinion is that the apparent anti-Semitism in our campuses and media was largely provoked by a party in interest, the natural sympathizers of Palestinians or Palestinians mm-hmm. themselves, or, or the sectarian sympathizers, Muslims, but a certain militancy of Muslims. Mm-hmm. And, and, that, and that what appeared to be a general reaction in Canadian society or parts of it was, was really just going back to earlier in our talk, that large section of basically well-meaning but under-informed and easily misguided people saying, well, look here, I mean, aren't the Israelis occupying territory that they should let the Palestinians have? And and so it was terrible what happened October 7, but to some point it's understandable. You You get that kind of nibbling at the edges of a moral issue. Mm -hmm. So I think there's been more of that muddled misplaced sympathy 
And I'm not saying that Palestinians don't deserve sympathy. They do, mm-hmm. but muddled, misplaced sympathy. Then there has been outright dislike of Jews. Mm-hmm. But, but there has been some of that, and I agree. It's been on a scale that's been very disappointing and worrisome. It really is. So as we wind up here, I guess one of the things I um, look to is, um, and I mean this sincerely, is what can we as citizens do to help support and renew civil rights in Canada? I mean, obviously we need to know our history, uh, read your your book, uh, Forgotten History, Civil Rights in Canada. But are there other things that come to mind as we look at... um, well, let's take it uh, the world of school trustees across our country or others speaking up about parental rights and having school boards uh, peers trying to, uh, uh, you know, squelch their voice to be able to, um, how, do we, how do we get engaged as citizens uh, to look at civil rights? I think we have to be more active in the areas where we have exposure. I mean, I'm, uh, you know, my children are all adults so i you know i don't go to school sessions on their behalf anymore um but um those who have school age youngsters should make sure they know what they're being taught and should assert themselves mm-hmm. and i mean this of course is a very burning and active issue in the united states but we, we should uh, this should happen and and uh, those who support universities, you know, uh, I mean, I've done it myself. I've made substantial gifts to universities where I'm an alumnus, and um, uh, and and, I, and that's Carleton, Laval, and McGill. And I don't have any particular complaint with them, as far as I know. But the but some of them, the conduct of these universities has been an outrage, and it really has. And so I think those who have some influence with the universities should mm-hmm. assert the influence. I mean, I, I think we I think we want sensible, reasonable public opinion to assert itself. Mm-hmm. We don't want to intimidate people. We, want to, we don't want to overreact. We want to mm-hmm. restore balance, though. But well, it takes well collective, spontaneous action by the public. I mean, we are majoritarian democracies, and, and that's you know that's as as Mr. Churchill said, it's the worst system except for all the others. Indeed. Well, it's been a far-reaching conversation today, uh, Lord Conrad Black. I'm very grateful for your leadership on so many fronts, including writing this book, uh, Forgotten History, Civil Rights in Canada. And uh, it, I do recommend it. And uh, it's been a pleasure to talk with you again, uh, Lord Conrad Black. And uh, on behalf of all of us, we wish you a Merry Christmas. Thank, thank you so much, David. And the same to you and all of your viewers and everyone at the Frontier. Thank you so much. Yep. Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.